I guess this week is Chesky. He's well known as one of the hardest working dudes in this DIY music world. And also, you may or may not know, one of the nicest dudes. Um, We did this kind of impromptu interview after his show in New Haven. And it was crazy. There was a bunch of dogs in the house. A bunch of drunk roommates, some label mates of his crashing on the floor. And somehow he found the time to make this happen and really appreciate it. The artwork this week, as always, is by Mike Riley. Check him out at MikeRileyComics.com. And once again, we're being hosted by Splice Today. Check them out at SpliceToday.com. Let's Let's go go in. I always kind of say that I grew up in Berkeley, California. Yeah. I was there till I was about 13, so I moved here for the beginning of high school to New Haven, Connecticut. And I still, you know, live in New Haven, so. Like, why were you guys moving around so much? Because my parents were, well, my father was a professor. My, mother, my parents are professors. Oh, yeah. So they were, they weren't, um was steady with jobs. They would just get, uh, you know, temporary jobs, different places. So we'd have stints in Argentina. And my father was writing a book in Argentina and in Spain at some point. They, they, they both do, uh, they were focused on uh, Latin American literature. And that was oh, their okay. field. So my father eventually became got tenured in Berkeley mm. and then my mother my mother never actually was a never became like a full professor or, or a professor at all she's a a lecturer a college lecturer so she's like a, almost like a freelance she'll she'll have like three year contracts she won't have like a guaranteed job yeah so what was Berkeley like Berkeley was a really cool place to grow up because it's like it's got to be one of the most multicultural cities, little cities in America. Mm. And so I got a taste of just tons of different cultures and shit. Just hip hop was massive at that point. You know, I got there in like '88. And so (laughs) I know on our street alone, the. Digital Underground's DJ lived on our street, and then there was a flea market, which is still there. It's called the Ashby Flea Market, which is at the Ashby BART station. There, they used to sell hip-hop tapes all the time, and it was like, you know, the era of, like, cross colors and, like, yeah, you know, Malcolm X shirts and, you know, just... Heavy back then, man. That was really dope. I remember just wandering the streets a lot as a little kid mm. <laughs> and meeting all types of characters. That's awesome. That yeah, that definitely had a big influence on me. When did you get the idea of I want to do this music? Well, I always messed around with music. I yeah. I even was already rapping and stuff like that when I was little on like a tape recorders just messing around I had a little Casio keyboard toy keyboard basically like a sampling keyboard right um the SK5 I think it was and we'd mess around and make little beats like little kid beats and make little raps and stuff and record them on, onto a boombox and I always messed around, but I didn't get serious, serious until maybe high school when I moved out here. What did you guys start doing out here? We started doing more rock. Mm. Like, we got really deep into 
um, like indie rock, hardcore, punk, you know, those scenes. What was the band? Uh, the band was, our band was Anonymous INC, oh, okay. which is the same band we still have. It's just my brother and myself, and we never really changed the name. Yeah. We just kept the same name <laughs> since we were like 13, 14 years old. So somebody asked me today at the show, when did this band start? Because we played an Anonymous INC show tonight and in New Haven, and so I was like, oh, the band actually started in like 1994. so it's just my brother and myself it's changed a lot over the years but what did you make of New Haven when you got out of here first when we first moved to New New Haven we didn't actually move to New Haven the city we moved to a suburb called Guilford and um, it was like this really wealth mostly wealthy Connecticut suburb um, you know, people, I had never seen a place where people actually dressed, all dressed the same. They were all just mainly, you know, for lack of a better term, white people, um, with white shirts and blue jeans. <laughs> and I, and I, I came to school with like these funky, like <laughs> MC hammer kind of pants. And like, I kind of had like wacky clothes styles that would rock and stuff. And and they would clown me super hard, and I I think uh, about I think I did two years out there, and then I went to school in New Haven area, and New Haven was actually like a, like a way crazier city than I had ever seen. It was like the first place where I ever saw you know gun violence really prominently. I saw it some in California, and especially. In the late 80s, early 90s in California and in Berkeley and Oakland, it was wild as well. But this was like, I was becoming a teen. I was a teenager. I, I, it was the first time I saw gang and gun violence, like, really openly and crack dealing and starting, starting to learn about that whole world. And I saw that in New Haven. I never really saw that in Connecticut. I mean, in California. So yeah, New Haven was wild. Like Latin Kings just ran New Haven back then. Yeah. In like um ninety four, ninety three, ninety four, ninety five. Yeah, ninety four I think is when we got here, so what happened with the original lineup of the band? Like or the original like rock uh, plan? Did that Well, we what ended up happening was we were always into hip hop to an extent, like we We'd veer off and different, get deep into other genres, but I remember meeting Mike King, uh, icon the Mike King, in freshman year of high school, and he got me deeply back into hip hop. Mm. Like I was doing the rock thing, I was trying to put on shows in my basement and recording on four tracks and stuff, and. He was rapping and he was doing graffiti and those were all things I I was interested in but wasn't really doing at the time and he got me way into them again. So he kind of joined the band at that point and he started rapping on a few tracks and we would do a lot of improvised stuff like freestyle stuff, just pure freestyle songs and record them. And yeah, so he joined the band. That kind of shifted the the band from yeah. being this pretty much indie rock heavy indie rock band um to influenced by bands like Jawbox and and you know, even like Nirvana like that kind of sound you know Fugazi that kind of sound to being sort of a hip hop band as well and it's funny man your boys that's when I he handed me the first Grand Buffet album it was called scrooge mcrock oh yeah 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 and um it somehow got to mike and he's like i think you'll like this i don't yeah. know how he got it it must have been like 95 96 i feel like that came out 97 but maybe 97 okay yeah that could be right but whatever it was right. around that time yeah yeah and but yeah like i don't know man i just was 
deeply into all underground music, whatever, yeah. whatever it was. But he was online, and he was in these... Um, we had always been interested in computers, so that was another thing we had in common. We we were making websites really early. We were hacking really early. Mm. We were into freaking phones. And What's all this, that? Like, messing around, like, we would... For instance, we would get these phone numbers where you can call anybody's number from any number you choose. For instance, I could call you from the White House. And, you know, it was more like a lot of it was mainly like extreme prank calling to an extent where we would like shut down services by by calling them so many fucking times. I mean, it, it, it was just this strange anarchy of the, of the early internet. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's crazy. And and back then, I mean, carding, we would we would just you could buy anything, you know, if you were uh, if you you could make up credit card numbers out of thin air. Mm. Pretty much that were that nobody would it would never affect anybody. It would just right, be this, right. this credit card made out of out of thin air and just buy whatever you wanted. <laughs> right. Like start an account and buy like I I remember I got like the first Palm Pilot that way it was just like sent to a house uh, and nobody asked any questions and the account was fake and it was all under fake names and fake credit cards and one time I even tried to uh, make an account under I, I looked at a credit card advertisement in a magazine. And I and I used the name John Doe, and I wrote the exact number that they had in the advertisement. Maybe changed one number and right. opened an America Online account with it, and was able to like buy CDs with it. That's crazy. <laughs> it was insane. It was just like back then the internet was just there was no security on the internet, and Mike and I we connected on that. Like we really thought it was interesting, and he got me really really into. What I guess is indie hip hop or underground hip hop. Yeah. As well, so that shifted the band. And did you start to think of yourself as an MC more at that point? Um, not really. I never did. I always looked at him and his, his friend Kofi, who was um, who was another MC that we used to mess with and do little freestyle sessions with and stuff. He was. Um. I would listen to them freestyle for hours and hours. We'd just get on the phone, um, and I would just listen to them freestyle and just sit back and take it in. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a radio station locally, um, WNHU, the New Haven University, uh, University of New Haven radio station that that had an underground hip-hop show that would be from like midnight till two in the morning on Fridays. Yeah. And we were just kids with no cars and kind of stuck at home and we'd listen and and call in and request songs and, you know, got deep into that. You know, yeah. So. But I really have to, you know, thank or blame Mike for getting <laughs> me into this world That's of awesome. music. And I, I remember you saying... I think that Soul was early on like a guy that sort of yeah showed you the ropes or something like that. Yeah, uh, I met Soul. Uh, I think I was eighteen when I met Soul. I was eighteen or nineteen. We were out in the bay. As I said, my father was he was still a professor out there, so we go every summer. Um, visit my father. Um, my parents had gotten divorced. My mother moved to New Haven. My father stayed in Berkeley. And we were recording a lot, and our music was getting better, honestly. It was just getting more interesting. And we had heard about Anticon. We, I think I, at that point I already had the Deep Puddle, um, Deep Puddle Dynamics on CDR that was like passed to me yeah you know I don't even think it was out I don't think that record was out it mm. was just passed to me so I had 
I was definitely familiar with Soul. I was familiar with Soul because of the song Dear LP. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the radio station I hear was playing it, and I thought it was funny, even though I loved Company Flow. Um, I thought that song was funny. I thought he kind of got him, you know? So I was like, who is this guy, you know? I was interested in it. And so we go to California, and we start going to these open mics in San Francisco, and these slightly, you know, a few people who, who are slightly older than us sort of were like, hey, you should come record songs with us. And it was the L.A. to the Bay crew. And and I'm referring to some cats um, named Deesky and Maliko and the Arachnophobics crew, um, Raj. There were some people I met in San Francisco going to open mics, and they introduced us to Soul and Dose. Okay. And so... Soul was really the first dude I met that was really living off of this shit properly. Off of this, mm-hmm. like, his own label. And he was like, I just remember him, like, young. You know, he was probably only 20, 21 or something at that time. Maybe 22. He just, I just remember him in his, in this Oakland warehouse in pajamas on his phone just calling distributors yeah distributor after distributor like talking about like units or whatever like right, right. on some real business like doing his own like record business type shit and that really had a big effect on me for sure mm. and we recorded a couple songs together back then uh one of them or I don't think I don't think they ever officially came out oh okay with you rapping or yeah, I rap and yeah. play guitar on it. Yep. And it, and so did you start to like rhyme as you were going to these open mics and everything? Yeah, I was freestyling. Yeah. Back then, I can't freestyle anymore. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I mean, I, dude, I've met such such incredible freestylers that I I get a little shy about it. No, I, but I can. It's yeah. funny because I think of you as someone that's real nice with it, like. From the you know end of show ciphers and stuff. Well, thank you. I I there was a time when I was touring with Mike and Nine, and we would freestyle every night. And that it's like any instrument, you know, man. Like when you when you're freestyling every night, you can you can just black out. Yeah. And and just you know, Mike and Nine is one of the kings of freestyle. So yeah. He was pushing me, you know, every night he'd bring me up on stage and we we do these crazy style freestyles. And um at that point I felt like I was definitely at the top of my game. I don't really think my top of my free, I've never thought of myself as a freestyle rapper though. Right. Even though I def I, I've done it a lot in my life. It's funny, I I kinda think there's a like inverse relationship between like getting deeper into writing and freestyle. Like I, I feel like yeah. the more like aware and focused you are on writing, it just becomes impossible to be to like like in freestyling you need to say the obvious rhyme sometimes. Yeah, you have to fall back sometimes. And it's like yeah. and like the writing side of you just doesn't like I feel like my mind is just like no I don't Right. Yeah, I'm such an editor. Like I'll go back and yeah, I'm not. Even when I write, I, I go back and like change things a lot and do many different versions of the same song. And so for me, freestyle, for me personally, I, I struggle with freestyle because of that same thing. Yeah. That editing kind of part of me wants to change shit up. Like okay. as I'm thinking about it, like oh no. Yeah, so, it's yeah. like if you say something really tight, you're like, I want to remember that. And then stop and think of like the best yeah, yeah. thing that I could say next. Yeah. So and was that when that that Toka project came out out there? No, actually, the first thing that came out was the Anonymous INC project. Okay. And Anticon distributed it because oh. they, they had a distribution company called Six Months, and it was a really out there record. I mean, by this point in two thousand. Um, the record was actually released in 2001. By that point, Anonymous INC had become like this jazz fusion, psychedelic, yeah. 
rock mixed with hip-hop like mixed with there's like crazy like free jazz lots of improv on that record like lots of bizarre like ornette coleman saxophone kind of stuff and then fast rapping and stuff like that so it's like all over the place we're all kids i mean we're like 16 18 years old at that point did you feel like some people heard that record yeah actually that was definitely the first thing that i mean built us a small fan base Oh, that's awesome. Because Napster, it was the era of, like, Napster. And some of those songs spread on there, and people started noticing. What did you guys do from there? We became Toka. From there, we we sort of tried to focus in on, uh, on some of the sounds we were messing with that we liked, and try to make them a little more accessible in a way like to us poppy yeah it was like our version of a pop record or pop band was talking <laughs> which is great. like way out there still yeah. you know but back, I mean, i'm saying the amount of the side sea stuff was like as out there as you could be it was like on some like john zorn like naked city type out there right you right. know what i mean so toka was like oh let's make like Pop songs that are genre bending, yeah, and like you know, it was almost like if Mr. Bungle made more, you know, had more choruses or something, and rapped more, and um, and we had met Tommy V and Cholo Lancinco at that time, and decided to make it this Toka project. So oh, cool! And Did that was guys... another saga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, so, did you guys like tour with that and stuff? No, actually, well, we had a short tour, but I think most of the shows only had like four out of the seven members or whatever. I oh, mean, okay. it was like people weren't showing up to shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at its peak, we had a few shows at the Knitting Factory that were really dope in LA at the LA Knitting Factory and at that peak we were 11 piece band oh wow so it was really hard for us to tour properly yeah totally. impossible even yeah so um but yeah we by the time we had a chance to tour <laughs> half the band the band was almost broken up at right. that point <laughs> and we were signed by this uh label that it was Snoop Dogg's management team. Oh, wow. That's and crazy. they, you know, they were trying to develop us and get us a better deal or something like that. And and it, it ended up breaking the band apart because we couldn't decide. We couldn't agree on stuff. Mm. And we didn't like how they were handling us and trying to sell us. And they were, like, really pushing the Latino thing. Like, uh... You know, basement in mid city Los Angeles, Cholo Lancinco put together a group of the finest Latin musicians <laughs> <laughs> to create Toca. <laughs> and so it was really, it was really strange. I mean, it was our first taste of LA and Hollywood. Right. And they were, I remember the, the label owner was trying to get me to write songs for his lady, who was an R&B singer. And he wanted me to move to L.A. just to write for her, like, not even, like, focus on the band. It was, right, it was right. a really strange situation. That's so weird. I, I bet that happens to, like, everybody the first time. Like, like if you move to L.A. or New York and get something going on, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I guess this is what you do. You know, like, write the bio about, like, the Latin <laughs> flavor or whatever. Yeah, I remember them. I remember those conversations. Uh, they were just like, "You guys handle the music. Let us handle handle this marketing. Right? You know, let us sell you guys." And I was like, "Okay." At the time, I was like, "Okay." And then, I was, then when it actually happened, I was like, "Fuck! Why did yeah. I say yes to this?" <laughs> and I remember like they were trying to have their hand on everything, like. The mixes and stuff like they really wanted the vocals at radio level like right. loud super loud vocals while the music would sit way below it because that's yeah. how it is for like 
pop rock and stuff like that. And um, <laughs> I remember being in this Escalade with the with the head of that label, trying to convince him that I wanted my vocals to sit a little lower in the mix because that's how I liked it. And um, he was like, man, Dr. Dre just listened to this track and, and he says the vocals have to be louder. <laughs> so it's just really funny shit. <laughs> Damn. But so, okay, so that like kind of dissolved. and Yeah, we released the record though. And I'm I'm still proud of that record. I think yeah. we put a lot of work into it, and I'm happy it came out. But the band sort of dissolved after that. Mm. Just a lot of a lot of personal things happened to you know, family things happened on, to everybody really in yeah. the band. It just fell apart. Mm. What did you do from there? Then I started focusing on solo music. Like yeah. when did you put out the first chess key? Well, the first Chesky thing came out in 2004, but that was a sort of a collection of a lot of stuff I was messing on, a, on an 8-track, messing yeah. around, and 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 this little label in Hawaii was starting up, and they, they were called Red Balloon, and um, they sort of said, hey, can you compile an album out of all the stuff you've been recording over the years and that's what became fake flowers oh awesome and um they fell apart before the record was released they paid for the mastering and then they were not a label anymore (laughs) so a label called beyond space entertainment came in and was like hey i know you have this record let's put it out and they they did it right they you know, I had like a 16-page booklet. My friend did Shit. all the art, and it was dope. It was like my first official—I mean, official release. You know. And what was it that had these different labels like reaching out to you? It was just internet stuff, yeah. mainly. At that time, I think people were just trading music more on this. It was harder to find music even right. at that point. You know. Like what, just like, pre iTunes, really pre pre iTunes store. Pretty, I'm pretty sure. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe iTunes had started already, but it just was. It was harder to find stuff still, and there was a niche market for what I was doing. And, right, right. And it was just being spread through like AOL Instant Messenger and shit like that. Yeah. Like people sending it to each other and. Um, trading like the tape traders had become internet mp3 traders at this point yeah so I I fell into that little world Um, my music did at least and people started finding out about it I don't know it was like there's no I I don't really remember why you know right right it was just sort of this vague oh through the internet Right, right. <laughs> and then um, Beyond Space became Net 31, and they released my second record that was called They Hate Francisco Faults. And that was around the same Toka time. And then, I, and at, that, at that time, I still hadn't toured. Yeah. I still hadn't toured, really. I'd gone to Hawaii a bunch, and I had just done these, like, one-off kind of shows, but... I didn't really start touring until 2008. Mm. So what was it in 2008 that made you decide to hit the road? Well, it was um, going... I got invited to Europe for the first time by DJ Scientist. Oh, yeah. And he... He set up this what what was the best tour of my life, you mm. know. That you know, it was. I had done tours with. I forgot to mention I was in a in a hardcore metal band as well. Oh right, Dead by Wednesday, and that was the only band I had really toured with, like serious tours, like big tours. Um, like we toured with Insane Clown Posse and that's right, that's and right. Um, some of like. A bunch of other like metal bands as well, like. But um. But that was DJ Scientist was the one to help me realize that I could do this stuff on my own and 
and you know possibly even make a living at it and it was the first time I really thought about being a quote-unquote professional hmm. solo artist or whatever it's yeah it opened me up a lot for sure is he like like why was it so good is is he like kind of like popping off over there well he was running a label called equinox records and yeah they kind of were popping off and they they had they set up this little tour that was just to me it was just so dope i mean the communities out there were so different they were so interested in and and focused you know the shows were People were there to like listen to what you're saying and like actually watch and right, not right. just like get faded and at the bar and like watch the game or something <laughs> while you're playing, which you know I had done plenty of that with Dead by Wednesday, so it just opened up a new world to me. And they were instrumental hip hop guys. I was the first vocal artist that they um, actually worked with. Oh, wow. so. I ended up making a record with DJ Scientist called The One Man Band Broke Up. Yeah. And, yeah, and all those, in those years, I had been touring heavy. Mm. 2009, I ended up touring with Mike and I in Seoul. That was, like, my biggest tour to date at that point, and I just kept doing stuff like that. I kept opening, finding ways to open for people I respected and um, even if I was not getting paid anything, just hustling my merch. Right, right. And, pay, you know, trying to figure out ways to get the gas covered and get a van from a friend or, you know what I mean? Right, like, right. I would find any way possible to make these tours happen. So, okay, so you were kind of, like, booking the tours. Yeah, I'd book them all, too. Yeah. I'd book them all. Yeah, I remember... Um, the Mike and Nine tour, Mike King, my my old friend Mike King, and I booked that together. Well, he really booked that one. So, yeah. Um, and then I just started booking all the tours for, for Fake Four. Fake Four started. Um, I'm sure there was some influence. Um, i sure Equinox, watching Equinox, and, you know, watching... Um, Soul and watching Beyond Space and Tony and all these guys influenced me to start the label. But by 2008, we started the label. What was the first thing that came out on it? It was my brother David's record, oh. uh, David Ramos, This Up Here. And we, it was after Toka, and we didn't really have a an outlet for this music that was ready to go, and we worked on it pretty hard. And, yeah. And so we reached out to... Um, a few friends one friend ran the started the Grim Image label out of California oh yeah and the other was the guy who had released Fake Flowers and They Hate Francisco Faults they were now called Squid's Eye Records out of Ohio and it was all Dayton Ohio based indie rock mainly or like it was it was genre bending stuff but to basically rock stuff from Ohio so he was Tony from Squid's Eye suggested that that we get distribution and manufacturing through Squid's Eye and then Grim Image offered to help fund the first release. Oh, nice. Because they were close friends with David as well. And they just wanted to see it happen. So. Yeah. So it happened. And that that's what that's how Fake Four started. From 2008 to now, when I think of, like, how many labels are, like, gone, it's, like, almost all of them. Is, is it something that you felt pretty encouraged about the whole time? As far as... Like, <laughs> or, uh, I mean, man, I think we started at the worst possible time. I think right, we right. started in recession, and it was just like the fall of. I mean, a lot of people saw it as the fall of indie rap at that time. Like, right. I think we're we're. I think indie hip hop is coming back in a in a, a lot stronger these years than when we started Fake mm. Four. 
Uh, yeah, no, we've always, it's always been this thing where it's like, this is impossible, and I just keep doing it because I'm an idiot. So. <laughs> the record with DJ Scientist, like, what is the overarching, like, theme, or like... It's about, uh, it's about, it's about a musician who... Uh, eventually commits suicide and dies, but um, it's more about questioning um, the life of a musician. Right. And uh, it's about my own fear of failure as a working musician. So that's what that record's about in, in a few words. It's funny. I feel like that record captures, like a grim scene like backstage and like a fucked up <laughs> like whack green room or something like yeah. more than like any other like <laughs> at, like song or album I can think of you know like oh, thanks yeah I think that's a product of some pretty hard tours yeah you know we all went we've all been through it man. I mean if you're a working musician and didn't get it the easy way which is most of us right You've gone through some shit tours, and that record, that record is really for other musicians. You know, yeah. I feel like we understand that record better than other musicians understood that record a lot better than other people. And do you feel like that third record was even like a higher like things were growing, like more people were getting interested or something? Yeah, for sure. Every record, man, it just felt like it's just grown. It's like a slow, slow growth. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I've never had, like, a big burst of growth uh, as far as my career. It's just been a slow, gradual grind. And that's cool with me, man. As long as I can still do it. I mean, you know, we talked about, like, these working musicians, like, questioning yourself and everything else. Like, do you feel like... Do you feel like you've been able to mentally maintain with like the slow growth um there are definitely tough times and you know i have issues with depression and stuff like that yeah. but overall yeah i i can i could deal with slow yeah as long as i'm surviving and working i could deal with slow yeah if i was just you know if i felt like i was taking steps backwards that would that would bother me, but I just feel like I'm I just keep moving forward. That's so. awesome. Sometimes it's just like at such a slow pace. Like oh yeah. It, that it's like Yeah, but we have to think about what we were doing like ten years ago. Right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're probably around the same age, I'm thinking. Yeah. Shit. Ten years ago I wasn't doing shit. Right. I was making music in my bedroom and it it was maybe coming out, but a lot less people heard it, and I wasn't able to share it properly with, or at least I wasn't taking the, I wasn't making the effort to share it properly with people, and now I, you know, now I am, even if there are shows that are like, you know, that 10 people show up to or whatever, and you know, it's still overall... I feel like I'm doing a lot more than I was 10 years ago. So. Yeah. And and I know you are, too. So. Definitely. <laughs> I don't know how tight it is to talk about, but, like... Say whatever you want, man. Yeah, do you, I mean, do you want to, like, talk about how this jail situation went down? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, so... Well, in 2008, I started a label with help from friends, but then it became totally independent, and we were just grinding on our own, hustling, trying to make things work, and um, a lot of my friends are involved in the marijuana business, because I grew up in Berkeley, yeah. California, so a lot of my closest, oldest friends were out there growing and and hustling that and it was you know legal there before anywhere else and so they were on some legal shit but 
they also started getting herbs out to the East Coast, and so I would be middlemanning stuff occasionally for them and helping them out. During those years, I um, I met a lot of people. Unfortunately, I ended up meeting uh, probably too many people. I probably opened myself up to meeting too many people, and one person in particular drove, um, was driving 100-plus pounds of weed from California to the East Coast, got arrested in Chicago, and then pinned it on me, um, brought police to my house, undercovers, and it was just this whole mess. They threatened to arrest my whole family if I didn't give myself up, and and so I gave myself up not even knowing the amount of weed, not even really knowing this this guy the person I met once in my life. I mean, were you supposed to be involved with this guy at all? Or you just like... No, I mean, he was... Yeah. I mean, I had met him, and he was a mute... He was an acquaintance of a friend of mine. Yeah. Of, of a close friend of mine. But even... He wasn't even a friend of... I can't even call him a friend of a friend. Yeah. It was just somebody who was, like, on my radar. But, you know, I wasn't fucking with that guy. You know, yeah. and I had... And I wasn't really, I didn't know him like that, you know, so you just, the more you meet people sometimes, especially in that, if you're hustling in that, in that game or whatever, you put yourself out there and, and some people take advantage of it. And he got arrested, he got scared and he gave my name because he didn't know me and he didn't have any reason to protect me. Right. So right. He snitched and brought police to my house and I went through court for three years over that and eventually took a bargain for some jail time and yeah did uh ended up doing four months at um because of a program in Connecticut that's right called transitional placement which is for basically for nonviolent um, offenders who don't have much of a record. Yeah, you know. So, and are you? It worked ho- out. It, 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 I mean, it sucks. I mean, yeah, just sucks. No matter how long you're there. Are you like dreading uh, the whole time? Is it like kind of like it's inevitable that I will be in jail? No, it wasn't inevitable. Um, I still could have fought it. It was not a very strong case. Yeah, and that's actually part of the reason I think uh, I got out earlier as well so I did get an 18 month sentence and in the state of Connecticut if you're a nonviolent offender you almost automatically do half of that time yeah so I thought I was going to do more like 9 months ended up doing like half of that right because of this other program and called TP transitional placement where you have to go to like a halfway type house and go to NA meetings for a month and right, right. blah, blah, blah. But basically, from what I could tell, from a, from what a counselor in prison told me, they didn't think that there was a very strong case against me. And so that was another part of the reason my... That was another part of the reason I was let out sort of early. Yeah. It was just, it's just, the case could have gone to trial. I just didn't want to take that risk. If I went all the way to trial, I could have done, you know, far more time if I lost. Or I could have won completely. Yeah. You know, and that, it's also, you're talking, you know, with good lawyers, you're talking another, like, 20 20 racks or something that you got to pay to you know some crazy amount that extra on top of what you've already paid it's like so yeah i i didn't have any possibility to pay that so like did you have an idea of like 
the label is going to keep it moving or like like what did you think oh about man yeah the label at that point I was like ugh. I was committed to releasing some records by some really great artists and it was really stressful man because I just it was impossible for me to do it yeah it would it would have been impossible and so I gave in and I made an Indiegogo campaign to attempt to save the label and I did not expect it to be as successful as it was it was it was a really successful campaign yeah and you know by the time I even found out I put I I I made it live minutes before I went to court to basically turn myself into prison. Yeah. So I didn't get to hear about the progress of it until three days later when I got um, contact with my family finally. And three days deep, it was already at like 27 grand. Yeah. You know, for, and I think I had asked like <coughs> half of that or something right, or right. less. So it was like, wow, this is incredible it was it really just helped me realize that there was a real very real base of support for what we were doing totally sometimes sometimes we're playing these shows to five ten kids and you know utah somewhere or something wherever we may be and we don't and we forget that in this whole world we we have developed a an incredible base and totally that was an example of it and then we're just every every one of those shows like when you meet a new person it's like you're just chipping away at the mountain you know yeah. it's like but yeah you're chipping away and making little holes yeah sometimes it doesn't doesn't feel like much but you've made some marks for sure and I'd imagine after that you probably felt like well now we got it Keep it, keep yeah, it exactly. There's like pressure to keep right. things going for sure. But yeah, I mean that saved the label for sure. It would have been really ugly to have. I think we had three, four releases planned for that entire time. It was like a really busy time when I actually went away. Yeah, and um, that would have been ugly, man. If we didn't have that support. It, I don't even know. And and it seemed like Fake Four started to, like, do things in, in a way where, like, on a more, like, I guess, professional level or something, where these records are more being, like, marketed to, like, radio and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we kind of, like, out the gate, we wanted to be that, because we, we had issues with labels like the the label with Toka where we were like man you guys didn't try to market this right. properly like we could at least try and so even our first release that we ever did we we had like a publicist and radio for it and yeah stuff like that I mean not every release but you know and do you feel like that's something you're able to like manage like because I, I I mean I remember at one point getting some advice from you on the those things and like it seemed like definitely you you had f- felt some frustrations as far as just like is it worth it or something to just invest that kind of money or something oh in that yeah way, you know? well I think there was a time I think it's changing a bit right now but. There was a time, man, when the middlemen, you know, and I respect to, I, I respect a lot of them, you know, some of them I don't respect, but a lot of the publicists and promoters, they were just overcharging and killing, basically killing off indie labels, I think. Right, right. By overcharging, like, these, like, outrageous amounts of money for something that wasn't that impressive in the end and so right. I think now the model is a lot of them are actually lowering their prices realizing like shit like 
we need this art to exist for us to even have a job like right so we can't be like killing off <laughs> labels who are hiring us by overcharging them and making you know making them broke yeah so um i think that's been changing for campaigns or whatever that would have cost us you know five to seven grand or even more we've paid we've paid a lot for certain campaigns um with fake four um nowadays i think i feel like that's about half the price and we can we can swing it yeah yeah and um or it's just unnecessary we would do our own we try to do as much as much on our own as possible yeah um but yeah things have changed a lot in that industry have you sort of made a shift do you think away from hip-hop you know me personally yeah or as a label you personally me personally yeah I think so. I love hip hop, but I think, man, I, more and more, I love playing like acoustic shit. And I think sometimes when I sit down to write these days, I don't necessarily sit down and write a rap as quickly as I'll write um, a guitar song. Right, right. But it doesn't, I, I, I do both, you know? Totally. So, my last. Released though is is an acoustic split with my friend Pat the Bunny. Right. Um, that it's fun. It's fun. it was fun for me to do like folk stuff. Like I mean, it always has hip hop undertones. Uh, even the way songs are written, totally. um, you know, with some potent lines put in there in a way that you don't necessarily hear with a lot of rock stuff. I think that's all hip-hop influence, even if it doesn't sound like it. Man, I, I feel like it's probably late as hell right now. Um, is, there, is there anything else you want to mention or anything? Oh, man, just thank you for having me on here. Hopefully that was cool. I mean, we're, we've been kind of um, trying to avoid dogs barking and yeah. drunk roommates walking into the house <laughs> and fucking... <laughs> Bands sleeping on floors. But I need to fill up an air mattress for them. So <laughs> I feel like we pulled it off, man. Yeah, I hope so. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. coming through, man. All right, that's that. See you next week.